You can open your Bibles to John 2. John 2. And Hebrews 8. John 2, Hebrews 8. And you're thinking, he's not starting in the Old Testament today. Well, I am. You're just not going to turn there. But we are going to be in the Old Testament. If it gets too warm in here, we might open those back doors and you might hear some noise from the kids, but we'll just deal with it. John chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 8. I will be their God and they will be my people. These are the words spoken by God as he chooses a people for himself. And it's a repeated phrase we see throughout Scripture. That's the language of a God who's committing himself in love to a people. I will be their God and they will be my people. That type of language speaks of commitment, relationship, loyalty, faithfulness, and even ownership. That language speaks of commitment, commitment to love and commitment to provide and commitment to protect. I will be their God and they will be my people. That is the language of covenant. If you're looking in John 2 wondering where I am, we'll get there eventually. That language of I will be their God and they will be my people, that's God choosing to enter into covenant with a people of his own choosing. To graciously commit himself to show them loyal love and faithfulness. We see that language used by God in the book of Genesis when he chose a man named Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham. And he made a covenant with Abram that he would give him a multitude of offspring, that he would make him a father of many nations, that he would give him a land as an everlasting covenant, and that through him he would bless all nations. And beyond that, God to Abraham, uh, Abram commits to show him steadfast love and faithfulness. Generations later, Abraham's descendants became a multitude. And you know the story there in Egypt as they became slaves to Pharaoh, and God sent Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And then there in Exodus chapter 29, verse 44, we see this language again, where the Lord says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. This God said to Moses as Moses was atop Mount Sinai. It was there in that setting that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments along with a myriad of other rules. And what God was showing Moses there on the mount and uh, by extension all of Israel was a type of relationship that they would have with their God. He would be their God and they would be his people forever united in covenant. They would be his holy people and he would be their covenant-keeping God. And so what? Etched in tables of stone were copies of the covenant stipulations. Those tablets stood as the testimony between God and his people as to the conditions of the covenant. And so those Ten Commandments, those tablets, were designed to forever bear witness to that covenant which God had made with the Israelites and to which the Israelites were beholden. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, however, he received more than the Ten Commandments. He received, again, a list of other rules, but he also received something very unusual. He received plans, architectural plans, plans for a structure called the tabernacle. This tabernacle was a sort of portable temple 
And God, down to minute details, gives Moses the plans, the design, and tells Moses, now take this down and and build it. This tabernacle was, again, a portable temple, and it was really designed by God as the means by which he would fulfill his promise to dwell among his people, the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 29, verse 43 says, There, speaking of the tabernacle, I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And so the tabernacle, or the tent of meeting, would be the place where the glorious presence of God would descend from heaven and dwell there in the midst of his people. That was the place where heaven met earth. It was the means by which the holy God of heaven could dwell in the midst of an earthly, and we could say an earthly and even sinful people. And so, in the heart of the tabernacle, In the most holy place, there was a chest, and in that chest, and that's called the Ark of the Covenant, inside that chest stood what? The tables of the testimony, the Ten Commandments. The Ark of the Covenant was the centerpiece of the tabernacle. There, the covenant between God and his people lay. It was on the basis of that covenant that God's presence could actually dwell in the midst of this earthly sinful people. When God's glorious presence descended, it was within that room, the most holy place, and above the Ark of the Covenant, saying that my presence is here on the basis of that covenant. After Moses erected the tabernacle, according to the plans that God gave him, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the God of heaven descended to earth, and he fulfills his covenant promise, to be their God, and he be their people, and he dwell in their midst. Well, since the tabernacle was the place where a holy God met with sinful people, it was of necessity also a place designed to atone for sin. It was a place of bloody sacrifices. Outside of the tent in the courtyard was an altar meant for the burning of daily sacrifice. The death of those animals served as substitutes for sinful people. Their sin incurred the penalty of death, and God permitted, by his mercy, substitution. And so that altar standing outside the most holy place always stood as evidence that there was separation. Always served as evidence that this relationship with God, a sinful people in the presence of a holy God, was only possible through substitution and sacrifice. In fact, the passage that we just read in Exodus 29, where God promises to dwell in the midst of his people, uh, just prior to that, God gives rules for daily sacrifice. And so Exodus 29, verse 38 says, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day regularly. Every single day blood was shed, sacrifice was made, so that relationship could be maintained. One lamb you offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you can read more about that in Exodus 29. The point is this, the tabernacle was not only a place where God met with men and atonement was made for sin, but it was that place where the holy God of heaven was able to have relationship with sinful men. 
The tabernacle also was a place for prayer and intercession. Exodus 33 says everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. That's where you'd go to pray. It was within the tabernacle that the consecrated priest would intercede for the children of Israel. It was not only a place of ceremony and sacrifice and prayer, but it was also the center of worship. When Moses would approach the entrance to the tabernacle to commune with God, all the people would come outside their tents and they'd watch Moses go to the uh, entrance of the tabernacle and all the people would worship outside their tents as they looked to the tabernacle. It was the center of worship. It was there that Moses would speak with God and receive instruction and, and revelation. And so it's in these ways that the tabernacle was not only a place of prayer and atonement and the presence of God and the center of worship, but it was also a place of revelation where God would speak to Moses. And again, at the center of all this was what? The Ark of the Covenant, containing a copy of the covenant upon which was the basis of this relationship. This was the covenant which allowed for God's presence to dwell among his people. It was in this way that the tabernacle sort of served as a portable Eden. Remember the Garden of Eden? Adam would walk in the cool of the day. God would walk in the cool of the day with Adam, and they would speak face to face. Adam sinned, of course, and then he's expelled from the garden, expelled from the presence of God. Well, the tabernacle and the whole ceremonial system was an attempt then to recreate that Edenic picture where uh, God's people could be in his presence once again. That being said, it was clearly less than ideal and obviously provisional. Although God's people could once again dwell in the light of his presence, it was only through sacrifice and it was only through ceremony and only with a thick curtain separating the people from his presence in the Holy of Holies. These shortcomings of the tabernacle system really would cause any faithful Jew to look forward and say, this can't be it. I mean, this is an Eden, right? Uh, it, it was enough to, to make any faithful Jew long for a time when God's presence could dwell among them without the need for that veil separating them from the holy place, without the need for death and blood and sacrifice. Well, the tabernacle was in service for some 500 years. It was in service for some 500 years as the center of sacrifice and atonement and prayer and presence and worship. But when David was reigning as king, David had the desire to build a permanent structure. Israel had rest, David was ruling, and there was peace, there was security, there was stability. And so David says, you know, we have this portable tabernacle, I would like to build a permanent temple. But David was denied. The prophet Nathan, God through the prophet Nathan says, no, you're not going to build me a temple. However, he gave the promise and said, your son, your son Solomon will build me a permanent structure. 1 Kings 6, 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. And so Solomon oversaw the construction of a temple. Twice the size of the tabernacle and far more opulent. It was constructed of cedar, lavishly decorated. And the Ark of the Covenant was transferred from the tabernacle to the temple. Let me read this in 1 Kings 8. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Just as the glory of the Lord would descend upon the tabernacle, now the glory of the Lord is descending upon 
the temple. Then comes Solomon's prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8, verse 20. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, and there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. And you can read that prayer in the ensuing verses. Then in verse 28 it says, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to this plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And so then Solomon prays, and he prays, Lord, allow this temple, this place, to be a place where you hear prayer. Allow this temple to be a place where where people can seek out and receive the forgiveness of sins, atonement. Allow this place to be that place where men from every tribe and every nation could come and worship the Lord. That was Solomon's prayer. And in 2 Chronicles 7, it says, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. God's presence in fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and ultimately then with David has been reaffirmed and he has granted his presence to dwell amongst his people. And with that, the temple, built around the ark, containing the record of God's covenant, became the place where prayer would be heard, the place where atonement would be made, the place where worship would be accepted, the place where the presence of God would descend. The temple would be that place where heaven met earth, where the glory of God would dwell among his people, the temple. Well... You've been coming to equip class as we've been working through the Old Testament. You understand the rest of the story? Solomon's decline, he would eventually descend into sin. He would actually begin to worship false gods. Because of his sin and the sin of the people, the kingdom would be divided. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. God would judge Israel for their idolatry and immorality. And both the northern and southern kingdoms eventually would be carried away into captivity. There were some moments of revival. Hezekiah led a revival and a purification of the temple and a rededication and so on. There were times of revival. But ultimately, God's covenant people would prove to be inherently unfaithful. And after having stood for about 400 years, Solomon's temple would be destroyed. 580 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came and they decimated the temple. This, of course, was in fulfillment of God's warning. 1 Kings chapter 9, the Lord says, But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And listen, And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, And this house will become a heap of ruins, 
Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why is the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? The Lord promised with the covenant comes blessing, with the covenant also comes the promise of curses. If you uh, disobey and you worship other gods, this house means nothing. The temple means nothing. This is a place for genuine, heartfelt worship. Your heart turns from me, no use for this house. He says, I'm going to destroy it myself. What a state of affairs then. As a northern kingdom is lost, the southern kingdom then is captive in Babylon, the temple is destroyed, and now we find God's covenant people. God's covenant people in violation of God's covenant. On the receiving end of the curses of the covenant. And according to the prophet Ezekiel, before Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the temple, Ezekiel sees a vision where that glory of the Lord, which once filled that temple, leaves the temple, leaves the holy city. The presence of God departs from the temple. God abandons the temple, and he drives his people from their land. With that, the Jews lost their house of prayer. They lost their house of atonement. They lost their house of worship. They lost their house of God's presence. They were people captive in a foreign land, surrounded by pagan worship, suffering as a consequence of their rebellion. That judgment seemed to have some effect on Israel. Because in their decades of captivity, the Jews would begin to long for what they once had, which often seems to be the pattern with Spiritual rebellion, giving into the flesh, suffering as a consequence of your sin, in the depths of that judgment, then having a sense of spiritual longing and revival. This is what happens here with Israel when they're in captivity. Now longing for the day, Lord, allow us to return back to our land that, we, that you've expelled us from. Create a day of revival when we could return and the temple could be rebuilt and we could experience your presence in our midst again. Create a day when we could be on the receiving end of the blessings of the covenants and not the curses. Well, after 70 years in captivity, God stirred up the heart of the king of Persia, uh, Cyrus. And Cyrus made a decree, and this was his policy for all peoples. It wasn't just the Jews. It was for others who were captive as well. When the Persians came in, they allowed these people groups to return to their homeland and to rebuild their temples. And so King Cyrus does this for the Jews. And the Jews return uh, to their city, and they begin to rebuild the temple led by a man named Zerubbabel. And so, led by Zerubbabel, the returning exiles build a new temple. Pales in comparison to the the Temple of Solomon. In fact, some believe that as some of the elders looked and wept over this temple, they were not tears of joy, they were tears because the second temple paled in comparison to the first. However, there's something distinctively different Not just size, not just opulence, not just decoration. There is something very different uh, between the second temple and the first temple. The second temple, like the first, had a holy place and had a most holy place. And the second temple, like the first, also had a veil separating uh, the most holy place from everything else. But the first temple in that most holy place, like the tabernacle, contained the Ark of the Covenant. That's the very place to which the presence of God would come and descend above that ark on the mercy seat. The second temple didn't have an ark. The ark of the covenant wasn't there. It was never recovered. We don't have a record either 
of after the second temple is built, we don't have a record of the glory of God descending upon that temple like it did upon the tabernacle and upon Solomon's temple. The second temple remained the center of the sacrificial system, but it seems to be a system devoid of the glory of God. Well, the Jews having then returned from exile and having rebuilt the temple, ended up descending again into rebellion. Their worship became hypocritical and empty. Not going off into idolatry per se, but they went through the motions of orthodox worship while not living to the glory of God, and it was simply empty and hypocritical. The Lord would eventually reject their worship and would warn of future judgments. And so the Old Testament closes this way. In Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them with gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. With that, the Old Testament closes. It closes with the promise that the day was coming when the Lord himself will suddenly come to his temple. Suddenly come to his temple again. But when he comes, he comes to do what? He comes to refine. He comes to purify. He comes to make them into a people who worship God in righteousness. John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus has, a few days earlier, turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And now he, along with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And there in Jerusalem for the Passover, Jesus and his disciples come to the temple. Now, this is Herod's temple. This was a renovated second temple. Herod had spent great time and money renovating that second temple, partly to curry favor with the Jews and partly as a vanity project. This temple featured huge inner and outer courtyards, covered colonnades where people could walk and rabbis could walk with their disciples and meetings could be held and so on. The outer courtyard surrounding the temple was called the Court of Gentiles. That's as far as the Gentiles could could come, as close as they could get to the temple. Beyond the courtyard of the Gentiles was the courtyard of women, beyond which the women couldn't get any closer. Uh, Beyond that, then, in the second section was the courtyard of Israel. Then there's a court of the priests and, of course, the holy place and then the most holy place. But Herod's temple... Like the second temple, and unlike the tabernacle, and unlike Solomon's temple, also was lacking the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant, and so this entire structure, including the courtyard, is referred to as the temple. And so, in our passage, it appears that as Jesus approaches the temple, he's there in the outer courtyard, the courtyard of the Gentiles. And what does Jesus see as he approaches the temple? It says in verse thirteen, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. 
What does he see as he approaches the temple? Oxen, sheep, pigeons. The courtyard is more like a barnyard. The sounds and the sights and the smells of livestock. The animals were there because enterprising individuals found that it was a lucrative business to sell sacrificial animals to traveling worshipers. I mean, you don't want to travel from far and wide with oxen, with pigeons. And so families could come and they could simply buy their sacrificial animals there in the courtyard. And this was lucrative business. Those coming, again, from far and wide uh, would avail themselves to these merchants. This was ongoing business. You can imagine, in addition to the animals, there would have been the sounds of bartering. Buyers complaining about exorbitant prices and sellers talking about the quality of their wares and so on. I don't know about you, but I hate bartering. Just tell me how much the thing costs, right? That's why I'm not, not going to travel, right? Because I'm going to end up paying through the nose for everything because I don't want to. And, you know, but in this situation, in this culture, there's bartering happening back and forth. Buyers' complaints and uh, the salesmanship there in the temple. But in addition to the selling of sacrificial animals, there's also money changers. Those coming to Passover to worship would also bring their temple tax. The temple tax was only accepted in the currency of Tyre. Why? Because the silver coins of Tyre was of a greater purity than the silver coins in Rome. Whereas Rome was about 80% silver and Tyre was about 94% silver. And so the temple tax was always received in that currency. So those coming to worship would have to exchange their money. And again, lucrative business here. Traveling worshipers there, not having any other choice, nowhere else to go to change their money, would pay exorbitant exchange rates. And so people were getting rich off of worshipers. And so you can imagine the dirty, chaotic scene. Cacophony of sounds. So you can imagine how travelers felt about that experience. Imagine going with a pure heart, desiring to worship your God, coming to the temple of all places, which is to be that holy house where the presence of God would descend, and feeling like you got burned by shysters in the market. The market, which was actually there on temple grounds, being ripped off by money changers. Now, Jesus would have been aware of this scene. Jesus would have seen this uh, situation in the past. But Jesus operates according to his own timeline, that timeline which the Father has laid out for him. And so this was the time where he is going to address this defilement of the temple. And so look in verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And Matthew tells us in relaying another situation similar later on in Jesus' ministry that he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And there he's quoting the prophet Jeremiah. And so you picture Jesus seeing this scene and he's welling up with righteous anger. And he grabs some cords. He starts twisting these cords together. And what he's doing, he's making a whip. Then with his whip in hand, he drives out the sellers of the animals. Drives out the sellers and the animals. Knocks over the money changers' coins. Flips over their tables. Says to those with the pigeons. He doesn't release the pigeons. But he says to those with the pigeons, get these things out of here. This is an incredible act of authority. 
Jesus came into the temple, disapproving of what the Pharisees and Sadducees had allowed. He supersedes their authority. He rejects the whole scene. He takes matters into his own hands. And what does he do? He purifies the temple. You can imagine the look on the disciples' faces. Up to this point, Jesus has proven himself to be meek and gentle. And there, with righteous anger, he drives out, and he really holds the scene as well. After driving these out, he doesn't allow anybody to come and carry any of these things through the courtyard. In verse 17, it says his disciples, seeing this and seeing their master's reaction, says they remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69.9, David lamenting the fact that his passion and zeal for the tabernacle of his day has led others to reproach him. And this here is applied to Jesus. The zeal for the house of the Lord consumes him. And by the way, it's going to be the accusations. Looking back to Jesus' cleansing of the temple and to the words he's about to say, it's it's this situation which would then be thrown back at him later as accusation, which would lead to his trial and ultimate crucifixion. Truly a fulfillment of Psalm 69.9. Well, having cleared the courtyard and refusing to allow the sellers to return, the Jewish leadership, obviously, are going to approach Jesus. And in verse 18, it says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you do show us for doing these things? It's interesting because if Jesus were any other person, and it shows you that that rumor of his reputation is spreading. Because if, if it hadn't been Jesus, he could have been looked at as just some vandal. I mean, just arrest him. Get him out of here. He's just wreaking havoc. But because I think the Pharisees and the Sadducees have heard about this man, they approach and simply say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Prove to us that you have the right and authority to do what you've just done. And look at Jesus' response in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You want a sign of my authority over the temple? You want a sign that I have authority to cleanse the temple? You want proof that I am the son of the father whose house this is? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The the Jews rightfully incredulous say in verse 20, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? That would certainly be miraculous. But in reality, Jesus was referring to an even greater miracle. Look in verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about the temple of his body. So in response to a request for a sign to prove his authority to purify the temple, he simply says, kill me, and in three days I will rise again. This is an early foretelling of his coming death and resurrection, but it's also much more. This is not just a simple metaphor. Those of you health nuts that are here, your temple's a body. I'm sorry, your body's a temple. Your body's a temple. Eat right, exercise. Your body's a temple. That's not what Jesus, that's not how Jesus is using this terminology. Jesus, by connecting his body to the temple, is actually signaling an enormous shift in salvation history. He's saying that he has the authority over the temple because he is the temple. 
Jesus was signaling that the time had come for a shift to take place in the understanding of worship and revelation and atonement and the presence of God and prayer and covenant. This is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, could simply say, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. It was him. Jesus had authority in the temple because he was the greater temple. How could this be? Why compare a man to a building? Why compare a temple to a body? Because Jesus is saying that through him and his incarnation and his perfect life and his substitutionary death and his physical resurrection and his exaltation, he would replace and supersede the temple and all of its functions. Every purpose fulfilled by the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon and the second temple, and Herod's temple, would now be fulfilled by Jesus alone. Whereas the temple was the place where God's people met with God, men and women would now meet with God through Jesus. Whereas the temple was the house in which God's glory was manifest, Jesus would now be the radiance of God's glory in their presence. Whereas it was the tabernacle where Moses received revelation from God, Jesus would now be God's final word to man. Whereas the temple was a place in which acceptable worship was offered to God, now acceptable worship would only be offered through Jesus. Whereas the temple was a place where atonement was made through sacrifice, Jesus would be the final sacrifice, which would bring full atonement. Whereas the temple was a house of prayer, acceptable prayer would now only be offered in Jesus' name. Whereas the entire temple system was built around the Ark of the Covenant, which contained copies of the Old Covenant, Jesus would usher in a new and greater covenant, which was built upon him alone. This is why when a Samaritan woman, in a couple chapters in John, and we'll get here in some weeks, this is why when a Samaritan woman wanted to debate with Jesus about the proper place to worship, the Samaritan would worship on Mount Gerizim, but their temple had already been destroyed. But the Jews then would worship in Jerusalem, and the debate is, where should we worship? Do we worship in Gerizim, or do we worship in Jerusalem? And so the woman there at the well, that Samaritan woman, wants to debate with Jesus about the place that is right to worship. You as a Jew say this, but this is what our fathers say. And then Jesus says in John 4, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But listen, but the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father uh, is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. He's saying the time is come for true worship. And true worship is not at all dependent upon location. Why? Because Jesus has become the locus of worship. Since Jesus has replaced the temple, all men and women the world over now have access. Access to atonement. Access to worship. Access to God's presence. Access to covenant blessings. It's not determined by locale. Jesus is the means by which God could say to people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, that is, anyone who would have faith in Jesus, I will be their God and they will be my people. Through Jesus, God has come to dwell in their midst. And actually, John has already signaled that this change was happening in John chapter 1. Remember he said that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and we saw that that Word was Christ. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is used a couple other times in the New Testament, and each time it's translated temple. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He templed among us. And then John says, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John has already told us that the glory of God has come and tabernacled on earth in the person of Jesus. With Jesus' incarnation, the glory of God has once again come to earth. When Jesus entered the temple at Passover, the glory of God returned to the temple. Yet Jesus didn't march into the most holy place, though he could have. Jesus didn't even march into the holy place. Jesus was outside the most holy place, and he was outside the holy place, and he was outside the court of the priests, and he was outside the court of Israel, and Jesus at this time was standing in the court of the Gentiles. The glory of God stood in the court of the Gentiles in the person of Jesus. It's as if the glory of God was an outsider to his own temple. The glory had returned to the temple in the person of Christ, but his own people rejected him, spurned the glory of God in favor of their empty and corrupt religious system. It's for this reason that Jesus would say later, towards the end of his ministry in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Then he says this, See, your house is left to you desolate. It's over. The time of the temple has passed. It is desolate. It is empty. In fact, it is now obsolete. From this point forward, since Jesus has fulfilled the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant and has ushered in the New Covenant, any worship or sacrifice at the temple would be an act of futility. The Spirit is not there. The glory is not there. God is not there. The house is left to them desolate. All true worship would be through Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus has replaced the temple as the new locus of the glory of God, the centerpiece of the covenant, the means of atonement, the only acceptable conduit of worship. And so Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that is the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant." And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is the new covenant. I will put my laws into their minds. 
I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And in speaking of the new covenant, what's it say? He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Jesus is not only the new temple, but Jesus is also the high priest. And Jesus is not only the new temple, and he's not only the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. And he's not only the temple, and he's not only the high priest, and he's not only the sacrifice, but he's also the God who's beyond the veil. Jesus Christ is the temple. He replaces the ceremony and ritual of that system. He supersedes the temple. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he breathed his last breath. And what does it say? The veil in the temple was torn in two. The veil which symbolized the separation between God and his people was torn in half. And it should never have been repaired because through the body of Jesus, access had been granted once and for all and forever. So in conclusion, I will be their God and they will be my people. That again is the language of covenant. These are the words spoken by God when he chooses a people for himself and commits to them in love to be their God. Under the old covenant, provision was made for God to take a people to be his own and for he to dwell in their midst as their God, first through the tabernacle, then through the temple. Access to God and relationship with him was granted, but only through an elaborate system of ceremony and ritual and sacrifice. Beyond this, there forever stood that curtain outside the most holy place, signifying that access was not freely available. Though though temporary atonement could be had under that system, the people remained sinners at heart. That system left his people longing for a better covenant. The weakness of the old covenant was found in the people themselves. They were sinners, prone to immorality, prone to idolatry. They repeatedly broke God's covenant and suffered his curses. As the prophets foretold of coming destruction and captivity, they also gave hope, however, of a different covenant, a new covenant, a covenant which could actually change people on the inside, a covenant which would see an end to the sacrificial system and an end to the separation between God and man. Jeremiah told of such a day in Jeremiah 3, And when you have multiplied and increased in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall say no more, The ark of the covenant of the Lord. For it shall not come to mind, or be remembered, or missed. It shall not be made again. No use for the Ark of the Covenant. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. The day is coming when a people from all nations, changed from the inside out, without a physical temple, without the Ark of the Covenant, won't even think about the Ark anymore. There's no more need for it. It is this day which was inaugurated when Jesus became flesh, ratified when he offered himself on the cross, and awaiting final consummation in the end. So John gives us a glimpse of the final state of affairs in Revelation 21. Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. But what of the temple? Revelation twenty one twenty two, And I saw no temple in that city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb.
So this morning, Christian, do you know that the Holy God of Heaven has entered into covenant with you? Do you know that He has promised to be your God and has made you His people? Do you know as a Christian that God has committed Himself to you in His steadfast love and faithfulness? Do you know that you are welcome in His presence? Do you know that you have free access to Him in prayer? Do you know that you have the promise of the continual forgiveness of sin? Do you know that you have been lavishly blessed with all spiritual blessings? Do you know that you have been granted spiritual life now and the promise of resurrection later? Do you know that He has secured for you an eternal inheritance and an eternity in His presence? Do you know that He, through His Holy Spirit, has granted you His continual presence actually inside of you? And how has He done this? Through the temple? No. Not through the temporary temple at least. Not through Solomon's lavish temple, not through Herod's rebuilt temple, but he has done it through what? Through Jesus, the greater temple. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that through Christ, all the shadows have been fulfilled, that he is the substance of all that was foreshadowed by the sacrificial system the elaborate system of the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrificial system and so on, all pointing to Jesus. We thank you that he is a fulfillment of those things. We thank you that through him now we have the promise of full forgiveness. Not a temporary atonement, but an atonement that cleanses us to our core, that cleanses us at our very conscience, that makes us spiritually new. We thank you that through Jesus Christ you have redeemed a people, You've called out a people to be yours. You have committed to us to be our God. We thank you that through salvation in Jesus Christ, Lord, the fate of Israel continually succumbing to their sin and the consequences of the rebellion. Through salvation in Jesus, Lord, you have overcome the frailty of man by actually granting us your divine nature and making us spiritually new. So, Lord, we thank you for the better covenant pray that you would help us to realize all the spiritual privileges we have in Jesus for everything that he has done for us as the greater temple. pray that you would help us to avail ourselves to him and to all that he has granted us. And Lord, we thank you most of all that you love us and that you've sought us out all according to your grace to have relationship with us. We thank you that you've committed yourself to us in your steadfast love and faithfulness through Jesus. Help us now to walk as your people. And then lastly, Lord, we just pray this morning for any who are not yet Christians. We pray that they would see their need for Jesus. If there's any here this morning who think that they're going to earn your favor through works, I pray that they'd understand the futility of that system and they'd understand their need for grace through the Lord Jesus Christ and He alone. I pray that you would save souls. Lord, we thank you for all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.